Nothing on Earth lasts forever, except maybe plastic. Welcome to another episode of CivCast. Today is, we are recording on Monday, May the 21st for the week of uh, May 21st to May 28th. Uh, I'm Dan, my co-host is Vouter, you are back. This is our something like sixth or seventh consecutive uh, week of recording here, so we're on a good roll right now. Uh, we've got a good thing going and we're hoping to continue it through this week with some discussion, further discussion of domination uh, games, of military, a report back section this week is on the Zulu, and I uh, had some interesting interactions in my Zulu game this week, and Voucher, I know you did as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about military in general, uh, preferences for military units, uh, preferences and directions to go with that, um, as well as kind of pivot towards next week's uh, discussion, which is going to be military in the late game. Um, plus, we're going to have a little bit of back, background discussion, some of the more, maybe some of the things that are a little bit less talked about, some of the aesthetic things. I wanted to talk a little bit about the music and show my appreciation for some of the design of this game uh, this week, because there are some things I really noticed this week um, on the back end that perhaps we don't show enough love to Firaxis for. So we'll talk a bit about that. Uh, and we'll fawn over the game a little bit more. So uh, how are you doing this week, sir? How is your uh, weekend? Uh, it was pretty great. Beautiful weather, and uh, things are going well here. Good, good. And how was your Zulu game this week for our report back section? It was actually quite interesting. I played on a Pangea map, like I want to do. Oh, uh, good, me too. <laughs> this time we didn't change it up. No, we went, we went consistent this time. That's good. And what was really interesting is that I started at the utmost edge of the map, on a very very thin swat of land and uh, oh. with my closest neighbor actually quite a bit away which gave me some troubles because i had to move a lot of military units all the way over there all the time towards my enemies um okay. the zulus i just went straight for like researching towards uh, getting the mp because that was where the money was and of mm -hmm. course also getting their uh, district the ikanda which is actually uh, a district I'm really fond of. Yes. And uh, I had, uh, in my game, I had the following players. It was Chonda Gupta, uh, Poundmaker, uh, Quin Chi Huang from the Chinese Empire, Tomiris, and Trajan. And huh. uh, my first uh, opponent that I encountered was China, uh, which I decided to pounce on early even before I got my impies and stuff ready. So I, I made a lot of uh, warriors and a couple of spearmen just to prepare for when the moment came that I had to unleash my impy army and was able to take their cities relatively easy and uh, wipe China off the map. And sure. then I just stopped and uh, because my next uh, opponent... Uh, was uh, Tomiris, and uh, she was a little bit more of a handful than I could handle with just my. I would uh, imagine. With just my warriors, I mean, my spearmen were pretty good against her, but it just wasn't a great setup. So I decided to wait and build a huge army of spearmen uh, when I could upgrade them to the impies, and just go mayhem at that point. Which worked actually really well. I just uh, had a lot of impies. I had, I think, two great generals who gave bonus to them as well at that point. So I had two forces swarming uh, Tomiris from the north and the south. 
Um, because I had that many spearmen, I uh, already preformed a couple of cores because I already unlocked the Civic for that with the Zulus as well, because you can do that earlier. And they were just not able to stop me. Um, in my enthusiasm to use the cores and the MPs, I even forgot to build a Siege Tower, which is actually a thing that was pretty um, pretty handy had I had it, but it wasn't yeah. even necessary. The MP cores are just such a powerhouse that I could just yeah. bulldoze through them. And uh, what I also found out what was really useful is that I could get some uh, crossbowmen formed into a core and just use that as my range unit. And uh, yeah, it was amazing. I loved it. So I, I pounced through the, the entire map with my MP army quite quickly and won the game at turn 154, in, which is 860 AD. That is an early win, my friend. Well done. Good stuff. So, I mean, you touched on a few things that I wanted to talk about from my game, but in general, too. So, I mean, we're focusing on the Zulu in general today, so I think it'd be helpful. I'll list off some of their um, bonuses and advantages for those of you who might not be near a computer right now. So, uh, their civ ability is Isibongo. Uh, Isibongo gives cities with a garrison unit plus three loyalty per turn, or plus five if that garrison unit is a core or army. Conquering a city with a unit will upgrade it into a core or army if the proper civics are unlocked. So that would have been something that was pretty handy for you, I imagine, because then you could just sneak in that kind of that one unit that maybe is not a core or an army and get them to be the unit that conquers the city and turn it into a core. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. I, I just surrounded the city with a couple of cores and yeah. usually one or maybe two MPs that weren't yet upgraded, uh, beat down on the city with the cores, and then just take the last batch with a, a, a non-core MP, which sometimes led to some really strange things that I, I actually uh, had to forego attacking with a core because otherwise I would already take the city and it, it yeah. was weird. Yeah, so you're kind of having to play around with that a bit. That's... Yeah. that's that definitely sets up a bit of a weird situation, but it's a beneficial upgrade for sure. Oh, there's no, definitely. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Uh, Shaka's leader bonus is Amabuto, uh, which means that you may form cores. Pardon me. You may form cores and armies earlier in the game, um, and an additional plus five base combat strength to both cores and armies. So again, doubling down on uh, the focus and the strength uh, of the cores and the armies, which is something that I know you're going to talk about a little bit later here. Um, in your strategy tip, but it's something that I really played a, a pardon me, I played around with a lot more um, in my game with him than perhaps I had in the past. I'd used cores and armies in the past, obviously, um, in domination plays and even in games where I was looking to use them defensively. But in this game, they're just so critical to leverage um, that I really, I really focused on them a lot more, I guess. So I'm really curious to hear your uh, strategic tip. The Akanda, the unique infrastructure, which I am very fond of as well, if only because the production costs, man, holy crap, you can yeah. build those in like in like four turns in the ancient era. It's insanity. Yeah, special um, districts has, always have costs. That's it's amazing, powerful uh, upgrade. Yeah, man, it was it was great. Uh, so half the production cost, twenty seven versus fifty four. You get plus one great general point per turn, plus one housing, which I thought was helpful too in uh, the growth of the city early on. Um, you acquire walls and range strike along with city centers. Um, it spawns all land merit military units the city builds. So your uh, land military comes out of the Akanda versus out of the city center, which again was, at first I, I was kind of taken aback by it. And I would, my Akanda, I 
in my, I know my second and third cities, I built them a little bit of a ways away from the city center. And so when I was spawn spearmen, I didn't exactly know where they went, but you find them pretty quickly. Um, it gives the parent city the ability to build land units with only one count of relative strategic resource, which is, I think, subtly a really helpful thing, particularly when we're looking at iron um, or horses. Provides XP bonus to units built in it once buildings have been added to the district. So once you add a barracks, you get XP bonus to units that are built in it. Um, specialists provide plus one district and culture each. 25% faster trainings of corps and armies and allows corps and armies to be built outright. My friend, that is a crap ton of bonuses for a district. And like, what, what is that? That's like, that's like nine unique bonuses on this district. I mean, a lot of, those... of them are shared with the encampment as well. Uh, so not of that, all of them are unique. True. That's true. I guess I'm, I'm looking at these off the top of my head. Which ones of these are shared with the encampment? The XP bonus is shared with the encampment. The unit spawning uh, there, the city attack the bonus. Unit spawning there is... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's not an encampment unique thing. That's a encampment thing. I might just, I guess I'm just spacing or maybe having, I'm just completely forgetting that units spawn there regularly. Um, okay, but of these things, of the parts of it that are unique, to me, the one that I leveraged the most was certainly the lower production cost and oh, the added housing. Yeah, and the added housing. So what was your experience with the condos? Was that something that you prioritized more above other things or? I mean, uh, every city I just built an Iconda, um just because my total economy was geared towards building as many uh, MP cores when I could. And having a Conda just really helps with that. Um, it builds faster, they gain more XP and everything like that. Uh, the housing itself is always useful, especially in the beginning of the game. Uh, having housing is a huge boon. Uh, you, I don't want to build an aqueduct or something like that. And the Conda itself providing extra housing is, is awesome. Great. Yeah. It's yeah, the housing was a fantastic bonus, the lower production cost, everything like that. It's a great early game uh, district. I, I mean, you prioritize it pretty much right away in all the cities I built. I know I did. Um, they're unique units. So we've talked about the MP. I'll share some of the MP stats with you. It One thing I did notice, and I, I knew this because I knew it was a medieval era uh, unit. The MP does come along a little later, I think, than perhaps people might imagine or might anticipate. It comes yeah. along with military tactics. I know, which is, again... Um, you talked last week about how military tactics is not something you prioritize and rush. And again, in this situation, you kind of had to. Um, it replaces the pikemen. Uh, the MP has a lower production cost, 125 versus 200. But I did find that I didn't actually train a lot of MPs. I upgraded a lot of my pikemen to MPs. Um, lower maintenance cost, 1v3, at increased flanking bonus, and it gains XP faster uh, than the base. So... I mean, there's not a lot to, to dislike about the MP. It's uh, it's cheaper. It, it gets built faster. It's the flanking and XP bonuses. Um, I mean, I don't. Again, that's the kind of thing that's kind of more invisible and more subtle. But uh, the maybe actually, can you maybe describe the flanking bonus uh, to me and to the people? Because <laughs> the flanking bonus was something that I think maybe I wasn't as aware of or wasn't as sure what exactly that entailed. It's relatively simple. Um, if you have units. Um, like surrounding another uh, enemy military unit, for example, you gain a small combat bonus boost. Uh, that's okay. the thing I believe that everybody gets. 
and I just the NPCs are better at it. I'm pretty sure that cavalry and stuff like that. I I think I use that quite often as well with cavalry. So I'm pretty sure that's for everybody a thing. Uh, but the MP boost is just a little bit higher. Usually it's not that high enough that you will actually notice it. Uh, but it, it can give you uh, definitely a boost if you're struggling with a military warfare. Okay, good. So um, I know that when I was building tournament, so my game just for a bit of background here, I actually the situation I had was kind of similar to yours. I was far away from other cities as well. I was actually also far in the north of my Pangea map, which meant that I was surrounded by snow and such, and it was really weird. I had the Matterhorn World Wonder spot <laughs> right next to me, so it's it's kind of odd when you think about it historically. But anyway, that's besides the point. Um, the nearest Civ to me, still pretty far away, uh, was Poundmaker and the Cree, which is a Civ that um, you know generally in games I played against him has been you know relatively peaceful and hasn't really engaged me too much. But right away he was wary of me, and I spawned right next to Preslav as well, the city state, and I discovered them almost right away. Um, and this helped because the other Civ to my west was Tamiris in the Scythia, and right away. She was aggro, like, the moment I encountered her. I don't know if her, the, the unique interaction she has with certain civs is different, depending on if, you know, they're also an aggressive civ. But I felt like her, like, right away, she was extremely wary of me. Um, and so I uh, suzerained the Presslove city-state right away. Uh, I leveraged their units. I waited until I had MPs to carry out an attack on her, but I had something like uh, eight spearmen and three or four archers. Uh, as quickly as I could, I prioritized military tactics. I upgraded my spear, uh, sorry, my pikemen to, uh, no, my spearmen, yes, to MPs. Um, and then I rushed her to frontier cities, took them down pretty easily. Um, then I went towards her capital. That was not quite so easy, uh, but eventually I was able to take it over. Conquered Tamiris around turn, I want to say, it's like in turn, between turn like 90 and 105 or something like that. Um, Poundmaker was wary of me, but he largely stayed away from me. Also in my game was England, France, and uh, I can't remember who the other Civ was. England, France, yeah, I can't remember who the sixth Civ was, but I don't think I encountered the Nor... No, was it Norway? I think it was Norway. Um, but they were kind of further off, and they were besides the point. And I didn't get to the end of the game. Um, again, in this situation, uh, but I did get to see the MPs in action. I was impressed. I did get to use them uh, to raid four, I think it was four of Tamiris' cities. And yeah, I mean, much like you had with your game, I was able to really kind of, I mean, I prioritized them in a way that perhaps, I always try and prioritize unique military units, particularly when we're looking for an early game domination play, but you know, with the Akanda, with the um, inherent XP boosts that I felt they were always getting, I felt like I was getting a promotion every other time that the <laughs> MPs would engage, which was fantastic as well. Um, you know, I had MPs that were upgraded to three um, in my early skirmishes with her. Um, you know, I had MPs that were upgraded to two just from fighting barbarians in the vicinity. So um, it was great. You know, I, they were fantastic. You know, I had a lot of fun with them. Um, this was a fun game to play this is a fun civ to play as i felt like it was really active civ felt like i was doing a lot with them which was great sometimes i feel like maybe it's because i tend to play more passive games i like the science-based victories um i do play a bit more passive but in this game i had to be active i had to be out there i had four cities pretty early on and each of them i had prioritized anaconda early and i prioritized pumping out spearmen um archers less so maybe than before um and i had a lot of fun with it 
Question I had for you. We're going to talk about uh, the report backs, by the way, that you guys shared at reddit.com slash r slash shipcast in a second. Um, so generally for me, with my armies, I prioritize the ranged units. I know that in the past, you know, a year ago, before Rise and Fall, before most of the DLCs, we talked about just how OP slingers were. They nerfed slingers at a point, uh, but I still tend to prioritize slingers. This game, I made a point of prioritizing spearmen. I mean, it makes sense, I guess, if you're facing Tamiris anyway. But the long way to the short route to this question is, did you adjust um, the military units that you prioritized in this game? And if so, how? Yeah, especially because normally I don't build spearmen. I find their promotion tree, for example, to be a lot less interesting than their standard melee uh, units have. And uh, because now I couldn't upgrade my warriors into impies, I had to produce a lot more spearmen than I normally would. So um, just because of the, sp the the unique unit, I had to change my entire build pretty much for the army completely. And uh, normally, like I said, I forgot to build a siege tower because the impies were so strong that I could be through walls without e with so much ease. Yeah. I also yeah. didn't really have to ha bring a lot of range units. I had, I think, three archers, which I later merged into one core. Uh, and one archer and upgraded to a crossbowman, but usually they were just too little too late because the the impi cores just bash through everything so hard. They are so powerful. If you look at the the the, the base stats, like uh, a normal impi core has uh, fifty six uh, combat strength. That's one combat strength higher than a uh, musketman has. Which yeah. is which is insane, and if you compare the musketman, well, the, the closest thing that you have for the same age is the pike and shot. I don't know if you got to that, but if you have a pike and shot uh, uh, Zulu core, then you have a melee strength of seventy already, and in a yeah. game where a difference of five can make like a huge difference if you win a battle or not, having such a large advantage is is huge. Yeah, so actually I want to talk about the Pike and Shot for a second. So this is a new uh, Rise and Fall era unit, and it really does try to mitigate this kind of Renaissance era, I guess, I don't know what the word you would use is, stall. I mean, basically you had the Pikemen, and then, I mean, later on you didn't have any until the AT crew in the modern yeah. age. So the Pike and Shot kind of bridges that. Um, this was the first game where I, I'm fairly certain this is the first game since Rise and Fall where I've actually had a significant amount of Pike and Shot because, obviously, you're upgrading them from the Impy. Um, I use them in like one engaged battle, and they're cool looking units, by the way. Oh, they're be beautiful. They, they, they look really neat. Um, I love the kind of juxtaposition when you look at them of the of the actual pike and shot. Um, it, I didn't really get to use them in any sort of pitched battle or anything really sustained. Are they? I mean, obviously, if you're Zulu, they have this base combat strength increase. Are these useful units? Does this make the anti-cab tree more viable for people if they're building up um, any kind of military. I definitely do think so. Uh, the Pike and Shot now fills a gap. If you do focus, if you have Tomiris, for example, on your border, then you do want to have more uh, spearmen than uh, warriors, probably, because you just want to counter cavalry. And the problem before was that you had your spearmen. Usually, I personally wouldn't go towards spikemen. 
And then I literally had to upgrade my Spearman to AT crew, which I then had to prioritize. Now you can have the Pike Shot, which comes naturally after uh, the Musketman, which is a very like normal uh, passing through when you're going through the tech tree. And it's a beautiful place unit that actually has a lot of purpose especially since the pike menace is in a horrible place in the tech tree so i really love the addition of the pike shot good so and overall it does make it more viable and i mean the renaissance era for me tends to be a bit of a staller of an era anyway because you're cutting between medieval and industrial when you get to industrial i know the game for me at least it tends to really ramp up um whereas medieval is when you're kind of that's when the AI tends to be the most aggro, and that's when you're still doing a lot of these border skirmishes and immediate settlement skirmishes and such. So, yeah, the, you know, having more um, action in that kind of bridge era, I think, is helpful, and that's what the Pike and Shot allows them to do here. Yeah. Um, I okay, a couple things I wanted to talk about here. I do want to talk about the report back section for folks. Um, maybe we'll wait until next week when we talk about later game military to talk about military strategy in general. Um, because one thing I did want to talk about is, is like, you know, where the true strengths lie right now in terms of military units across the board, not just situationally. We can talk about, you know, unique units and leveraging situations and, you know, depending on who you're facing, but it, it, then next week, let's talk a bit about, um, you know, which trees and which units, um, just are altogether the strongest. What I think we should talk about right now is something that was brought up by Dash Rip on the subreddit, which is the viability and I guess the tiered nature of the Zulus as it pertains to a domination play. So um, if you haven't seen it, uh, go to the subreddit and check out the thread that Dash Rip started on the report back. So um, Dash talks about how, you know, there are some problems with the Zulu. And I think these are problems that we, you know, you and I voucher touched on earlier, which is that they don't actually they don't ratchet up their strength until a little later than perhaps you would expect um, with the MPs being a you know, sort of like a late, almost medieval era unit here, unless you really hyper rush them and prioritize them. Um, and so the part of Dash's uh, post I wanted to quote here talks about um, what they call a contentious opinion. So I'll quote it here. Finally, I want to uh, through a, a throw, I would assume, a contentious opinion into this. I think Persia is the strongest warmonger in the game. Zulu power comes too late. Macedon and Samaria both rely on the early game to win to snowball. Mongols are a close second by the reliance on cavalry makes them easy to counter. Persia gets a strong early game unique unit, but also a very powerful ability. A surprise war with the movement means his troops will be at your cities before you can mobilize your forces. It's very easy to get a six-movement immortal, creating a very mobile and deadly army. So um, this is a really good point from Dash. The juxtaposition, last week we talked about, you know, um, Alexander and Macedon as being this um, overwhelmingly strong classical era military civ, and I think that goes, that's that's inarguable. Um I've always kind of been intimidated by Shaka and the Zulus because they're so inherently aggressive whenever I see the AI play them in a game. But when you put them up against civs like Persia, perhaps one of these late classical slash medieval era civs that's supposed to be strong, um, do they hold up or do they kind of fall by the wayside because of, I guess, this reliance on this heavy reliance on one unit that comes along a little later in the tree? So if you put them in uh, equally skilled players' hands 
Uh, I think that the Zulus have a significant uh, disadvantage in the beginning of the game. They really need to have it from their ability to get cores easier and their impies, because those are where their real strengths are. The fact that their Ikanda is 50% cheaper to build makes it easier to uh, hold your cities. Uh, what Deathstrip says is like, you need, you can't get your troops ready before the immortals are at your city. Um, you play a defensive game with Shaka if in this kind of situation where you know that an enemy is going to come for you and uh, you will prepare your cities with uh, archers in both your Ikanda and your city center, have your city walls up there and everything like that and just wait and just keep bashing at them until you are at the stage where you can crush them with your cores and everything like that. I think in, you will lose some terrain, but they won't be fast enough to take you out. Uh, when I see Shaka in the game that I play as and he's my opponent, I know I want to take him out because if I keep him like doing his own thing, he is going to be a problem for me that I might not be able to deal well enough with, especially at higher difficulty levels. So yeah, it, it is kind of difficult to see but i think actually that shaka would have in equally skilled hands um uh, the upper hand even because their defensive plays can be really really solid and once they get at the stage where they are strong the others fall a little bit more to the wayside and they uh, shaka will just snowball over them okay so i mean the opinion that you're sharing here sounds to be pretty similar to the opinion that uh, VectorCat posts after in this thread, where Vex says, Shaka's abilities do come too late, strong Civ, but only if they survive the early game. I love using cores and armies for DPR reasons, but also just managing units on the map. Uh, so I'm a fan, but delaying the snowball is rarely beneficial. Shaka comes into his own in the mid-game, and usually I want to have established some kind of foothold before then. So logically, an earlier Warmonger would seem to be a more attractive option, which brings me to Persia. Um, and then if you read the rest of Vex here, actually, um, I think Vex kind of disagrees a little bit there with Dash in the sense that um, reading it here, the, it talks about how there's some inherent problems with the immortal disqualifying Persia from claiming the top spot where, where warfare is concerned and that Persia feels slightly without a focus, which I would agree with. Yeah. You certainly can't argue that Zulu is without a focus. I mean, everything filters through this one specific play style. Um, so I guess my kind of broader, more overarching question for you then would be taking all these things into consideration, we focus these past couple weeks on early game warfare and early game domination plays. All these civs that you look at that focus on that, let's say between ancient and renaissance, who would you say is pound for pound the strongest of these early first four era focused uh, domination civs um uh, it's difficult because if you because gilgamesh we didn't play uh, sumeria in these couple of weeks but they have a really really strong position with the war card um false movements and everything like that in the beginning of the game just rush with that you can do a lot of damage um, in the total scheme of things, I don't think they hold up well enough anymore. Um, you can push out a lot of war cards, but especially playing against the Zulus, build, pre-building a lot of spearmen and everything like that, you might actually get out 
paced by it. Um, the same could perhaps be said for Alexander that um, his units are just a little bit stronger and come close enough that they will be able to resist uh, the war card army if you prepare for it. But that's difficult to say, man, because Persia, I love them, but they indeed feel a little bit without focus. They are on the offensive really powerful, but once they're on the defense, that that's actually very easy to like beat Persia because they don't get the movement bonus. They still have the immortal, but that's all they got. And um, I don't think that's enough to overcome the rest of the gang. So you need to be on the offensive and preemptively declare war on people just because they might declare war on you. And that that's difficult because also the bonus only lasts for 10 turns. And after that, you only get your immortal unit. And I don't think that's enough to overcome uh, an Alexander or a Gilgamesh, for example. But okay. I, I don't know which one okay. is the best. No, that's fair enough. It's a tough question. I know. I just I threw this question at you apropos of very little. And I just wanted to see if maybe there was one that off the top of your head, you know, kind of stood out. And Sumeria is a great answer. I know for me, one Civ that I just, for a combination of reasons, I love their aesthetic. I love the setup of the Civ. I love the unit. One early game domination Civ I love playing is the Aztecs. Oh, yeah. um, there are there are flaws with the Aztecs in this game. Obviously, I'm not a huge fan of their Civ ability. Um, and their infrastructure is debatably useful but love the eagle warriors early in the game um so yeah you know it's an interesting thought here uh there's a lot of civs uh right now in the game that are focused on those first four eras for a domination play i find that's really where the game has pivoted right now and so next week when we talk about um industrial modern atomic and information age domination plays here i think it's gonna be a lot of fun it's gonna be really interesting because i know a lot of people just the nature of the game I'd probably say one in every five or six games I play even makes it to the, say, modern or atomic age. Um, and usually by then I'm, I'm dominating so much that there's very little relevance to my military upgrades or whatever. So um, I'm going to be curious for next week um, what the experience you have with the, the later game military is. But right now, um, which civs would you look at as actually being kind of tailored towards late game domination because for me i look at it and if you take a combination of um, military units and abilities and such i really only see the australians the uh, americans the germans maybe the russians with the cossack um and i don't know i I think that's pretty much it yeah uh just look at the list right now I mean, maybe the French with the Guard yeah. Imperial, but that's not a very that's not a very good unit. So, no. um, yeah, is that it for anything that's like a unique unit from Industrial Era on? I mean, if you play on, for example, a, a, a island place map, then uh, Pedro of Brazil would also with his uh, Minas Gerais uh, would True. actually be able to. But beyond that, no, I think uh, especially the Americans with uh, two unique units uh, in that time. Uh, probably takes like the best option for it also there uh like the teddy's personal ability to have five extra combat strength on the home continent will probably help uh fighting wars there at least but uh beyond there there is no real 
powerhouse in the late game military wise um, most of them are indeed focused on the early game uh, perhaps some of them a little bit more towards the mid game like uh, Shaka but none of them really have like a super powerful tank or, or, or something like that is that something you want to see in future uh, expansions or DLC or patches or whatever do you want to see them pivot towards having equal focus or equal leverage on uh, late game, not just late game military plays, but the late game in general. Because I guess I do think that the, the that late game is there. They have a lot yeah. of late game military units. They really do, if you look at it, folks. I mean, you know, some of these, I, I think I've built like, like once or twice, quite frankly. Um, there's a lot there. It's just, I mean, I just so many of your games and before, I don't know, before the modern era is so is that something you'd like to see them do is pivot these games towards in some way, I don't know how they do it in getting people filtered more towards the late game. I don't, I think I would really love if they uh, give us something like a, um, I know a German alternate leader who has the unique ability to build like a, a super far- powerful a panzer unit or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to see perhaps a Soviet leader or something like that. It doesn't really fit with the current Russia that there is with all their yeah. uh, things there is, but something like a Russian with a, a T-34 or something like that, which are some of yeah. the like uh, the Second World War units, a British one, yeah. uh, some, something like that. Some, because that is such a pinnacle moment in military um proudest pretty much uh in in our history of course you have a lot of like the ancient uh battles and stuff like that they're really well known and there was a lot of them but uh, we don't have anything in the game that focus more on like the second world war or something like that with with all the military might that was shown there uh the closest you would get to would be the digger from australia or perhaps the americans uh but even that it, it doesn't really hit me on that specific spot because I like to use tanks in the late game warfare and give me a unique tank unit. Give me a Panzer. I, I would love that. And I think it actually Problem. would fit with this German uh, uh, that Germany that there is right now. It would, but you know, the problem with if you if you go with a second German leader and you make the unique unit to Panzer, you know who that German leader has to be. And I don't yeah. I don't think that they're willing to go in that direction. They, they and, I'm one hundred percent certain they are not. Uh they haven't yeah. done it in earlier games. And yeah. uh I, I know that the depiction of him is illegal in Germany itself. Therefore Illegal. Yeah, ah. yeah. Okay. Uh, Paradox games, for example, Heart of Iron. Uh, they had to have a specific German version where his uh, image was uh, a shadow, even though it was just a drawing of him. It was not allowed. Interesting. I had no idea. I mean, I know that obviously different elements of you know World War II propaganda and such are prohibited in a lot of those countries, but I didn't know that just the visual depiction of Hitler was was forbidden in Germany. That's interesting. I mean, they ha- have had Stalin in the past, right? So yes. you talk about the Soviets, but I know having Stalin in the past was was controversial to say the least, and I think doing it now would be even more so. And I think that I mean they also- they've had a couple of those. Uh Mao Zedong was also in the game once and yeah. uh, that that's also definitely on the same skill uh, as I would put uh, Stalin and stuff like that. So yeah, it, it it definitely brings a lot of problems in there as well, and uh, I I just I I mean I don't necessarily want Hitler in the game, but I do no. would like to see uh, a, a Panzer unit because the Panzers are are a really ingenious piece of military uh, technology, 
and they will use it for a terrible goal. But I mean, fascism is in the game. Um, yeah, and it's true. the Panzer itself. Yeah, I I think it would be not too far fetched to get something like that into the game. Who is going to well, be the leader of that? That's gonna be Trixie. But um, yeah. I mean, yeah, could you do like Rommel? Maybe. Maybe yeah. you could do Rommel. I mean, he's a general, right? I, history doesn't look on him with the same level of vitriol and hatred. I mean, he was a he was a general who was doing his job, like a lot of the generals there. So maybe you could do a Rommel. Maybe you'd even do like a Willy Brandt with uh, West Germany after the yeah, war. Exactly. And then it kind of becomes anachronistic with the Panzer. I don't know. But you're right. I do think the option's there. And I think you could do that for a Soviet leader too. I mean, you could do Gorbachev. You could maybe do Khrushchev. Um, but yeah, now you're right, man. You know what? I think it'd be fun to see some unique units that, that lean more towards the late game. I do really want to see, we were talking about secondary leaders last week and I was actually having this discussion with one of my friends who plays Civ six, who I know listens to this podcast. Um, and, uh, and he was talking about how the secondary leader thing would be cool to see with like a modern American president. Oh, definitely. I mean, they've done, they've done. FDR in the past, I think is probably FDR would make a lot of sense. That's a wartime era president. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think we're f- far enough removed that you could hypothetically do a, a Kennedy. You could do a, I don't know if there's some that history haven't recaptured. I don't know. Could you do like a Reagan? I don't know. Something like that. So it'd be, it'd be curious. It'd be really cool. Um, if you even want to stretch it even further, you could technically, yeah. I think maybe already do a Bush, a Bush uh, yeah. junior. Oh, but I don't think I don't think they like depicting leaders that are still alive, right? I think that's kind of one. I of mean, that goals. is definitely like a, a problem, and when you get to the modern era. But if you want to have like uh, specifically, if you want to focus on a bit of more warfare, then uh, Bush Junior with like his war on terror and stuff like that could be yeah. a thing. It is very recent though, and that is going yeah. to be a, a problem uh, because. A lot of people have so many different opinions about him himself. Um, yeah. But yeah. I mean, Valter, I'm looking forward to 50 years from now, Civ, I don't know <laughs> what iteration that'll be, Civ 22, when the alternate American leader is uh, the current president. That'll be uh, that'll be interesting to look back on for sure. Um, I thought you were going to say Obama because I'm Obama, looking forward to well, that. Yeah, no, that would be fun. But can you imagine Trump? As, well, I know there's mods that have Trump in the game. <laughs> of course. But. Uh, when they when Paraxis or whoever owns the IP at that point actually decides to roll Trump out as a president for Civ twenty one, that'll be a, that'll be interesting. Hopefully, we're around to see that. Uh, we are doing the Americans, folks, for our uh, report back for next week. Um, you know, Americans a Civ that. I mean, I know I know a lot of Americans listen to this podcast. Um, Neither Voucher nor I is American. I've obviously played the Americans have been in every Civ iteration, right? That's fair to say. I think so. Yeah. And they always alternate their leaders. They have, they've had like four or five different leaders in the course of the game. I think Teddy is their fifth different leader, which is great and fantastic. I always do find the Americans to be a bit of a safe sieve, a bit of a vanilla sieve in the game. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. And the Americans in this game under Teddy are, are, are good. Um, so next week we get a chance to really dive deep into them and we will pivot towards um, a late game. I don't know, Voucher, do you want to maybe play a game where our start era is the industrial era? That, that was that? literally what I was thinking about as well. Let's start a little bit later in the game yeah. than the ancient era, just because yeah. um, it's different. We have done it for some of the challenges as well. And yeah. uh, this way we get to the part that we want to 
kind of play with and that's the later game uh warfare so yeah i think uh, starting in the industrial era is uh, definitely a great idea let's I tell you what let, let's do this let's do that let's do industrial era let's do like a let's do like an island plates map or something like that <laughs> and then let's do let's do all of our modern era civs let's do like eight and let's let's throw in like a china or a russia a france and england a germany maybe an india let's 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 have a distinctly modern feel to our game. How about because there's nothing more anachronistic than when you got like a Scythian, I don't know, a Scythian <laughs> a, a mechanized infantry or rocket artillery or something like that, right? Yeah. So let's, uh, yeah, let's let's do that. Let's let's roll out a late game. So, folks, if you want to join in with us on that, you can uh, definitely partake. I did want to get to uh, the other report backs on here. Touch on them really briefly before we pivot in another direction. Uh, Thomas ran talked about um uh their playthrough with zulu as well uh um sorry i'm just looking at it right now thoughts on the zulu they're incredibly good at what they do and i do mean incredibly once they start snowballing it's nearly impossible to stop like most domination civs they're easy to stop solid b tier if you ask me uh vector and dash debated the akanda a little bit down below and then finance is 12 12 a uh, person who shared some posts with us way back in the day um, talks about how Persia actually is best suited for warmongering as well um, and how their bonus road movements to surprise war bonuses make movement a breeze and they can hold cities easily since they get bonus loyalty when compared to other civs for stationing a unit. So the report back on the Zulus actually ended up turning into a report back more so on Persia than anything else, which is actually completely all right, guys. We love conversations like that. Um, so thank you for your heavy engagement on the report back this week. I apologize that I didn't post the thread this week. I had a super busy, uh, it's exams week, it's AP exams week. So I had a lot of panicking students this week. Um, so I was super busy all through the week trying to make sure that they didn't uh, they didn't lose their minds. So this week, I will be sure to post the report back thread as soon as possible. Um, actually, okay, so the other thing I wanted to talk about, we want to talk about the aesthetics and we wanted to talk about um, some of the design features here that we maybe haven't Before talked about. Before we, we quickly pivot to that, oh, I just want sorry. to ask yeah, you one yeah. question. Where would yes. you put the Zulus in a tier list for Domination Victory? For the ones that I have focused on with Domination Victory, I'd place them below Macedon. I'd place them below Mongolia. I'd place them on an equivalent tier to uh, Nubia, who I really enjoyed and who I think are, are underrated. Um, Samaria, I haven't played in a while, so maybe I'd have to... Uh, I know Samaria just inherently is super strong, so I'd have to maybe play another game with them um, to really judge them versus all these. I'd, I would put them below the Aztecs, but that might be a bias because the Aztecs are probably my favorite Civ in the game altogether. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd put them, I mean, I guess that would solidly be a B tier. Um, and they're I feel like they're more intimidating. Whenever I play against Zulu, when the AI is playing, I'm terrified, but I felt like when I was playing Zulu, I was a bit less of a threat until I really started to snowball with the NPCs. Yeah, I have the same problem. It might be because of Civ 5 that I'm super biased because in Civ 5, the Zulus were a huge war beast. They yeah. were insanely yeah. powerful with they their MPs yeah. there, um, less so in Civ 6. And because of like the, 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 I have this bias towards seeing them more powerful than they are. And therefore, I want to place them on the A tier list, but I don't think they are. I think I agree with you, a solid B. Okay, good. All right, so we're on board with that. That's good. And I mean, they might get adjusted as time goes by with patches and such. But I mean, look, this is a sieve. This is really cool. Another really cool thing to add, actually, too, is 
Um, Shaka is one of, I think, only five or six sieves, maybe it might even be like four sieves, with perfect attendance in the sieve series. Shaka yeah. and the Zulu have been around for the entire series, which is fantastic because, I mean, that shows that Firaxis does a wonderful job of avoiding Eurocentrism with things like that. To have a sieve like the Zulu be around for the entirety of the series is great. Um, now, the thing I wanted to talk about as it pertains to design and music, I really wanted to talk about the music this week because I love 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 the zulu music and the juxtaposition between the zulu music and the kree music when it's going up against the kree just really put me in a really warm place to maybe appreciate the game even more one of my classes uh, my ap world history class um a couple of the kids in that class are in like um a choir or in some sort of singing group and this week when we were studying they had like i give them about an hour for some self-study and to float some questions by me and stuff like that honest to god no joke, one of my students started humming Baba Yetu to themselves. And as they started, and I started recognizing they were humming Baba Yetu, I looked up at her and I said to her, is that, is that Baba Yetu? And she said, yeah, hey, you know that song? I said, do I know that song? <laughs> and I said, how do you know that song? And she said, oh, my choir does it as a song. So, you know, I, I know Baba Yetu, I mean, it won like a Grammy, didn't it? Or something like that. Or at least it was like nominated for a Grammy for like... Yeah, I believe it was yeah. something. It, it, it won something uh, recently, but not by the Sif series. It was for something else, I believe. But it was the Christopher Tin uh, version though, that did won something, I think, a year ago yeah. now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just reading it right now. Shababa Yetu was nominated for 53rd Annual Grammy Awards in Best Instrumental Arrangement Accompanying Vocalist Category, making it the first video game theme nominated for a Grammy Award. Eat your heart out, Nobuo Uematsu. Um, but yeah, that's, look, I thought that was so neat because when she started humming it, my ears just perked up. And the reason <laughs> I bring that up is because, um, and maybe that's what kind of really had me focusing on the music uh, this week. The Zulu have some fantastic songs. I know that when we talked about the Cree right after Rise and Fall, I talked about how in love with their themes I was. Um, Civ 5, I wasn't so keen on Sonia de Valer. Their, uh, or no, so, no, not Sonia de Valer. Sonia de Valer is this game's theme. What was the theme for Civ 5 again? I think the fact that I don't know it says enough. I have yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I mean, I, the, uh, the, I think of the Brave New World theme, the Terra Nova theme, and how that was kind of boring. Sonia de Valera is the theme for this game, and it's a fantastic theme. Oh, yeah. Um, but the, the in-game music, Vouter, um, I mean, I, I hearken back to Civ 4 and Civ 5, and I only can remember bits and pieces of the in-game music. But as someone who, you know, grew up playing games like Final Fantasy that have, like, wonderful, amazing musical accompaniments, I gotta say, the production value, the quality, the nuance, the effort that's been put into music in this game is unrivaled. It's something I really, I really, really love and really appreciate. Um, are there any like design things, whether it's the, the visual aesthetic or the music or the um, overlay or the UI, things in this game that you've noticed that um, you really, really appreciate, really love? I actually don't usually play with the sound on when I'm playing uh, Civ or I pretty know. much any game, and that's a big problem. I, d I don't yeah, really have Yeah, you that. It's a bummer. Yeah, I, I tend to do other things while I'm playing games, like watching series and movies and stuff like that. So having yeah. the music on is kind of like really problematic when I want to watch a series. So yeah, 
I, I actually I actually don't I, I remember that um I do do really 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 love the theme song. Uh Christopher Tin yeah. is an amazing composer and he did a really great job with the, the theme song. And that's the one that I did hear like a lot because I also watched like a lot of trailers before the game was out and stuff like that and always that song was on. Mm-hmm. And I have listened a little bit to the the soundtrack that I got because I got the deluxe edition or something like that, and yeah. uh, I I really like it, but I can't say which which civilization springs out because of that because I actually don't have that connection unfortunately. That's fair. Um, I totally get it. It's you know I I usually play late at night after the kids gone to bed and after the wife's gone to bed and usually it's just I'm sitting there with my headphones on and I'm really zoned in and really focused and so yeah. that really allows me to kind of appreciate it. I like I said um, this week too, looking at a unit like the Pike and Shot, looking at the MPs which look really cool. Um, we talked a couple weeks ago about um, the Kev Sewers is a really cool looking unit for the Georgians. Um, when it comes to the aesthetic, you know. Really quickly wanted to touch on this because I know it's something that I remember you, Kyle, and I talking about um, that I wasn't as huge on the more sprightly, um, not yeah, juvenile is the wrong word, but as it pertains to Civ Five, the less true to life aesthetic, right? Like we have yeah. disproportionate looking units to buildings, weird looking, you know, disproportionate resources to units. The cities are really, really tiny. And the sense of scale to me wasn't there versus Civ Five. When you build massive cities in Civ Five, they would look like massive cities. It feel like massive cities. It's something like a Sim City. <coughs> Excuse me. I have grown to really appreciate the aesthetic in this game. I think. Um, I don't know if it's because post uh, Rise and Fall with the Golden Ages and Dark Ages, and you know the me turning back on night and day cycles and stuff like that. If that's kind of been something that I've really um, grown to love, or yeah. if it's just time has allowed me to appreciate the aesthetic a little bit more but this week i really found myself appreciating it what about you um do you still hold kind of the same opinions that maybe civ 5 was a better aesthetic that you liked the way the game looked more or are you starting to move i think six? i think that now that i'm about five six hundred hours into the game or something like that i start to like appreciate the aesthetics of this game more um I don't think it's at the same level as 5, but I, I'm not that much against it as I was before. Um, things look great, and uh, today uh, I, I had a look at the MPs again uh, on close-up, and I just love it. Um, I tend to play very like zoomed out, so I can see as much information as I, I can, pretty much. Um, but, but sometimes with these kinds of unique units, I, I tend to zoom in and just take a look at it. And like you said, with the day and night cycle, I find that actually really, really, really cool mechanic in there uh, where you can see like the lighthouses light up and everything like that. Um, I do love the, those kinds of bits and pieces that you have into the game. Absolutely. Folks, next time you play a Scotland game or if you're playing up against Scotland, just zoom in on the Highlander unit. Look at the sporin. Look at the detail on the tartan on the kilt. I mean, I obviously <laughs> have. Like, the details there, um, you know, I, I the, the aesthetic is, a, not off-putting is the wrong word at first, but it definitely does take some adjustment if you're a veteran of thousands of hours of Civ Five. But the units, they've done such a wonderful job on detail, on coloring, on just, just the sprites themselves look fantastic. So... I wanted to take just a few minutes just to express my appreciation on that. I know it's not a strategic talk. I know it's not a tech talk. 
I know that's what people listen for, but sometimes it's nice to focus on the little things and uh, really kind of appreciate what it is that makes us love this game, which I, I know for everyone out there goes beyond just the simple, you know, strategic bits and bobs. It goes into these deeper things like music and aesthetic. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Good stuff. Um, all right, my friend. So uh, let's get to your strategic tip then. I'm excited to hear a little bit more about armies and cores, and I'm excited for you to teach me a little bit more about them. Yes, because armies and cores is what we're going to talk about, uh, how to use them and when to use them and why they are so useful. Because ever since Civ 5, we don't have the, the stacks of Doom anymore, where you just put all the units that you could in one big pile and just rush it towards the city. Now you have to play this kind of chest-like game where you position your units correctly and you can only have so many units fighting in your front line. And that's where in Civ 6 the cores and armies have beautiful plays in combining a little bit of that because it brings a little bit back of those Doom stacks in the correct way. You can pile more units in a single tile which doesn't have the added effect of both units their strength in that tile but just a little bit of added effect and i think about a year ago or something like that i actually did the math on it a little bit to see how useful is it to have a core or an army now cores and armies get a higher base strength and we've talked about it multiple times on this show in the past uh, years or so that uh, having a small advantage in combat strength it can be a really big change you can win or lose battles based upon four points or something like that on base combat strength and having a core or an army just gives you so much more base combat strength. For the Zulus, it's even better because they get an additional five base combat strength. But even for normal armies, they are so much stronger than their individual unit. You will have so much difficulty pouncing on that one mechanized army uh, instead of having like two, perhaps a single one of them. And therefore, I am of the opinion that the moment that you can get your ar armies unlocked or your cores, just go and merge a couple of your units into, into these more powerful spearheads that can form your defensive line or your spear to break through an enemy's defensive line. You don't need to upgrade everything into a core and army. If you can, that's great. Of course, do it. But just be very wary that you still have a full line out there. You know in your game how large your battle line can be and just make use of that. Make it as strong as possible and don't have units in reserve that much. Put them into a core and army and actually make use of those units that otherwise would just be standing around doing nothing while you're playing this chess game with weaker units that you can have. Awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, you gotta that's micromanaging that is ultimately beneficial altogether. And really that's something that people should be focused on. And something like a, a Zulu game really allows you to leverage it because of the focus on armies and cores, maybe points in a direction that you're not used to going. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. Okay. So um, for my historical minute, I'm going to talk a little bit about Shaka. Um, you know, fully honest here, I, I'm not an African historian. I don't know. I'm not a South African historian. I know very little about South Africa, Zulu culture, etc., etc. But I did find a really cool poem that was written about Shaka. And there's a lot of controversy about Shaka as an individual. Um, you know, in South African 
or African really general oral tradition because he he and his tribe really went outside of the bounds of what we look at as traditional South Africa. Um, there's kind of a juxtaposition because on one hand, they view Shaka as this kind of heroic um, like nation builder, this king who was really an exemplar for how you can build a strong, um, prosperous, independent African nation. Um, but then there's others who would look at him as being basically a depraved and murderous monster because he really was all about wholesale warfare. He was all about uh, he was all about slaughter. Quite frankly, when you read the historical accounts of him, he um, he did not mess around. You know, he uh, he had his buffalo horns attack formation for surrounding and annihilating enemy forces. He initially, when the Europeans encountered him and brought him firearms um, and said to him, you know, these firearms are far superior to your spears and weapons. He, he watched a demonstration of the firearms. Then he went to the European um, captain, I guess, who presented it to him and basically said something along the lines of, well, you know, I, I see how effective it is to have this missile that you're shooting at other people. But, but, but the reloading is a problem because by the time, you know, you've reloaded your gun, you'll have eight or nine of my men you know, seized upon you with their spears, you know, ravaging you to death. So, you know, he was a guy who didn't mess around in the poem um, translated to English and obviously an English translation doesn't do it justice, but it's a Zulu praise song um, that was translated about Shaka and it goes like this. He is Shaka the unshakable, thunderer while sitting, son of Menzi. He is the bird that preys on other birds, the battle axe that excels over other battle axes in sharpness. He is the long-strided pursuer, son of Nadaba, who pursued the sun and the moon. He is the great hubbub, like the rocks of Nakandla, where elephants take shelter when the heavens frown. So he's a guy who, um, you know, history and, you know, African oral tradition and written tradition looks back at as, as being a violent guy, um, as being a... A nation builder, yes, but so when you look at him as being particularly aggressive in, in Civ Six, again, there's historical relevance to that. Um, you know, he never met or saw or encountered a village nearby that he wasn't keen on conquering. Um, and yeah, you know, his legacy is is controversial. His legacy is um, violent. His legacy is something that I personally know I want to read a little bit more about to learn more about. Um, and his legacy, I think, is pretty well represented in Civ Six, quite frankly. A legacy of militarism, a legacy of, you know, revolutionary wartime tactics, where, you know, whereas in the past with African warfare, from what I've read, a lot of it was, you know, about kind of um, skirmishes and about lightly armored, quick skirmishes that were over after a few minutes. Shaka wasn't about that. He was about bringing massive troops, massive cores, much like in the game, <laughs> together and engaging in wholesale, large-scale battle against his enemies. So, um, yeah, an interesting historical character for sure, um, and one that, although I don't know a heck of a lot about, I hope to uh, read a bit more about in the near future. So, yeah, interesting dude. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, so... Um, Next week, like we said, with the report back, we're going to be doing America, and we're going to be talking specifically about late-game military, industrial era, and beyond. Um, we encourage you guys to participate in that as well. I'll be putting the report back section up, uh, reddit.com slash r slash 
So I'll be putting that up within the next couple of days here. So please be sure to share before Monday so we can get you on the report back section here. Uh, if you want to play another sieve with a late game that has a bit of late game focus or at least some late game unique units like a Germany or an Australia, feel free to do that. Let us know how that works. We can talk about tiers next week as it pertains to late game military. Um, as always, if you want to send us an email, sibcastpodcast at gmail.com. Kyle is sending us any information on uh, emails that you might have. Uh, is there any other? I mean, you can add us on Steam. Bowter, your Steam is Innocentius69 still. Is that correct? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, and my Steam is Haggis Hands, one word. So you can add us both and you can check out our games played and our achievements, or in my case, lack thereof. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, anything else you want to add, my friend? I think that's depart? it for this week. Good stuff. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in again. We really appreciate you sticking with us. We hope that you're still enjoying it. We hope that you send us whatever feedback you want. I know that there was... Oh, I forgot to mention, really quickly before we go, there was feedback this week, segment-related feedback, I think, on the subreddit. Uh, who was it that shared it? Suggested, Yeah, Wonder Discussion that Dash Rip suggested. Uh, we might get into that next week if we have a chance, but if not, we'll get into it the subsequent week. We'll talk about wonders and you know natural and world wonders and which ones we prioritize and prefer. Um, but beyond that, have a good week, folks. And remember that bold actions speak louder than words. <laughs>